0: Peace-building and mediation in international relations and conflict areas need to involve a variety of parties in order to be successful. Nearby states, global powers, the United Nations. How do we get those parties to the table? And of course, we now have uh, a major international crisis that we have to deal with that also involves uh, mediation, peace building, all of these processes that are going to be necessary to resolve the crisis in Ukraine. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Daisaku Higashi, Pro- Professor of International Relations in the Center for Global Education, SOFIA Institute of International Relations at SOFIA University in Tokyo. He's the author of Challenges of Constructing Legitimacy in Peacebuilding, Afghanistan, Iraq, Sierra Leone, East Timor, and more recently, uh, a book called Inclusivity in Mediation and Peacebuilding, the UN, Neighboring States, and Global Powers. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Daisaku Higashi. Thank you very much
1: for having me. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Great, great to have you. I know it's late in Tokyo, so we'll try not to keep you too long. So maybe we could start with the new book, uh, Inclusivity in Mediation and Peacebuilding. You know, perhaps you could just lay out the main argument of the book and explain what problem you're trying to address.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for giving me these opportunities. Uh, I basically have a two argument in this uh, late, latest book, uh, Inclusivity in Mediation and Peacebuilding. Why is about the question of the inclusivity in mediation during armed conflict and in the post-conflict peace buildings? Uh, Based on my extensive field research on South Sudan, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and East Timor, I argue that uh, the nature of the inclusivity in mediation during armed conflict and the nature of the inclusivity in the post-conflict peace building are fundamentally different. Uh, with regard to the inclusivity in the post-conflict peace buildings, I argue that there's kind of consensus by both practitioners and also academics or researchers that uh, it's very critical to have an inclusive political process uh avoiding kind of political exclusions against some certain group of, of the of the societies. For example, in the case of uh, Iraq there's a political exclusion against uh, Sunni political factions uh, after United States started military intervention to Iraq in 2003 and it had a, you know, repeated con- it created a repeated con- you know, conflict uh, in the in the Iraq. In the case of Afghanistan, the peace builder excluded the Taliban from the beginning of the nation-building process, starting from 2002. And in the end of the day, after 20 years, Taliban destroyed their power in Afghanistan. So I think the uh, importance of the inclusivity in the post-conflict peace building or avoiding political exclusion against some certain political group uh, become kind of consensus, uh, both by practitioners and also uh, also academics, you know, practice or academic, you know, researches. But in terms of the inclusivity in mediation during armed conflict, when the people are still fighting, the mediator might need to take very flexible approach uh, in terms of the inc- inclusion of the many political groups uh, because in some cases, it might become just impossible for uh, for for conflicting parties to have any type of the peace agreement if there are too many representations of the different groups uh, in the negotiation table. For example, Sassouda is one of the typical cases, but when they had a revitalized peace process starting from the end of 2017, there are too many political groups which... Uh, allowed to to participate in the peace negotiations. I, I mean about 25 uh, groups actually participated but it was so difficult for them to make any you know peace agreement. so in the end of the day uh, there was a bilateral negotiation by the president Kir and the vice president Masha, which kept fighting and they are most you know you know influential parties and after after they made agreement, uh, it became possible for them to extend that agreement to other political factions and that they had some uh, comprehensive agreement in 2018. And this agreement is still maintained uh, in the South Sudan. So uh, those kind of cases actually show that we need some flexible approach uh, in terms of making a peace agreement uh, in the process of the mediation during the armed conflict. Of course, it's better or it's good if we can make a peace agreement by having a lot of political groups in the negotiation. But sometimes it might be difficult to make an agreement. So in this case, you, we need to accept some kind of, you know, a flexible approach uh, to make peace agreement, uh, you know, feasible first. So I think that this is, a, there's some kind of different nature of the inclusivity in the mediation diagram conflict and the post-conflict peace building. The second argument is about the role of the different groups uh, in the different phases of the mediation and the peace building. In the post-conflict peace building, I argue that still the United Nations should play a central role uh, because the United Nations can be seen as at least some impartial parties uh, compared with kind of a you know, global power, a very powerful state. Uh, because if powerful states become a very central part of the nation buildings, they might be seen as kind of a neo-colonialism. But, so it's better for the United Nations, I think, to play a central role in the post-conflict peace building after they sign some kind of peace agreement. But in terms of the mediation during armed conflict, I argue that what the United Nations can do is quite limited if there's a big difference by the global powers and the neighbouring state or how to end the war. So it is a responsibility of the neighboring state and also global power, uh, which can, which need to persuade conflicting parties to make, uh, cessation or to make a cheese fires and to have some kind of, you know, peace agreement. So, um, so I think there is a kind of different role of the different actor in the different phase of the peace building and also, uh, mediations, uh, during armed conflict. So those are two big, uh, too serious argument that I try to present
0: in this book. Yeah, in- interesting. So the UN you present in the book as kind of playing two different roles. I mean, largely defined by the phase of the conflict that we're talking about. On the one hand, it can be and kind of has long, I guess, been thought to be a, a kind of uh, honest broker that both sides can trust, and you know, there can be a guiding hand in, in mediation or negotiations. Uh, But then you also describe a kind of way in which the UN can be abused, uh, used, I guess, uh, by you know, p- parties that don't really have any interest in, um, in uh, mm-hmm. you know, negotiations succeeding. And of course, this inevitably, I'm afraid, brings me to the current situation in, you know, in Ukraine, where there have been talks going on, there were, and I guess maybe still are talks between the Russians and the Ukrainians in, um, in Turkey. Um, But they don't seem really to be very serious. I mean, outside observers all seem to sort of dismiss them as as not real, as, you know, the Russians not really being interested in achieving any negotiated solution. So, you know, how does that work? I mean, if you have parties who really aren't interested, I mean, what can the UN do? And maybe this is really what you mean by this kind of being abused sort of notion. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question because this is one of the central parts of my book. So again, it might be useful to to have some distinction between the phase of the you know post-conflict peace building after they have some peace agreement and the mediation during armed conflict when they are keep fighting. In terms of the nation building or post-conflict peace building after you know conflicting party had a, had a, have a peace agreement. Uh, it's, I think it's still better for the United Nations to play a central role because, uh, UN seems to be, or UN still seems to have some comparative advantage as, uh, for that impartiality and the credibility compare with some global powers, including like the United States or even Russia in Afghanistan in 1970s or 80s. I did a lot of opinion survey both in Afghanistan and also in Timor. And also there are a lot of academic research about, about how people perceive the United Nations or UN peacekeeping operations and the, the global power who might be present on that state. And there's a kind of unanimous uh, findings that people still see United Nations as a more impartial Compared with the one unifies one unilateral state, when they have a phase of the nation building uh, processes. Um, of course, the United Nation is not perfect, but uh, the post conflict state need to have some credible impartial impartial party or credible third party which can ensure that process is fair. For example, if they have a conduct elections. Uh, they need to have some credible third party which can ensure that the process is fair and counting is also fair, because there's no trust among the internal parties yet, because they just kept fighting until they had in a you know, peace agreement. So, and in terms of the credibility, in terms of credible third parties, uh, United Nations is not perfect, but still seems to be still better compared with the some global power over one, one uni, uh, unilateral state. So because it, those states could be seen as kind of neocolonialism actors. So in terms of the post-conflict peace phases, the uh, United Nations can play some good activities or a And there is also academic study that at least the United Nations seems to have some kind of 50%, 75% of the successful rate in the post-conflict nation building or peace buildings. Uh, United Nations might despise some you know, peacekeeper and they try to create some you know, you know, sustainable peace by making some democratic state. They do not succeed all the time, but the, the success rate is not so bad, like a 50% or 75%. But in terms of the mediation during armed conflict, uh, United nation, did not have so much good record in the last, especially last 20 years. They might dispatch a lot of UN special envoys, and they might be very perfect and you know, great persons. But on the, in the mediation in the Syria or Yemen, or like Libyans, uh, the record is not so great because one of the reasons I argue is that global powers and also neighboring states are very divided. And in terms of, for example, like Syria, you know, Assad government was has been supported by Russia and Iran, and opposition has been supported by, like, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, you know, UAE, EU, and also the United States. And for many, many years, uh, those global power and the neighboring state did not have so much real intention to stop the war in the Syria. So they might support ostensibly the role of the UN Special Envoy, but on the ground, they kept supporting the, their British or the their faction they like by military method and also the financial uh, assistance. So in this case, uh, United Nations or UN Special Envoy can be used or even abused by the global power or neighboring state to pretend that that they are interested in the making a peace. But actually, they just keep making, uh, you know, assistance, uh, military assistance, financial assistance to make, you know, their protege, uh, win the war. So in this case, it's very difficult to stop the war. So I think a global power and the neighboring state have primary responsibility to become united about how to end the war and to persuade conflict party to stop stop the war. so that was I think an implication also uh, when the neighboring send global part completely divided, what the United nation can do is very limited in t- especially in terms of the mediation during armed conflict and I think it has a direct implication to the law of the United nation if one of the p5 states, Started such a very explicit military aggressions or invasion against some some uh, sovereign state. So, uh, when this uh, Russian regime continued, the role that the United Nation can play is quite uh, damages. Or so we, we we cannot have so much good expectation about what the United Nation can do in terms of the mediation in the, those kind of armed conflict. If one of the P5 is a country which invades another country, yeah.
0: Right. So, um, I mean, this all leads into, you know, the question I want to ask about the current situation in Ukraine. I mean, the book is basically about, you know, essentially internal civil wars, however internationalized they may (laughs) be. Uh, but I, I want to, you know, ask you, I mean, if you can draw lessons from what you've learned about these internal war cases for the current situation in Ukraine, um, are there things to say or are these situations simply completely different? Uh, I mean, how what lessons would you draw from your work, you know, to, to try to help us resolve the crisis in Ukraine?
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, th- I think there are three implications on my book or finding on my book on this current Ukraine conflict. The first is that it's very difficult for global powers to create some kind of puppet government or the government which is very favorable to the state which have military in- invasions or military intervention to that At the first place, for example, it was so difficult for the United States to create a country which is quite favorable to the United States in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's also true that for Soviet Union, it was impossible for Soviet Union to create a country which is favorable to to them. In Afghanistan after they invaded Afghanistan in nineteen seventy-nine. You know, they had fighting for ten years and they, they withdrew from Afghanistan. And the United States did it, it's not the same, but the United States also had a military intervention after September eleven because Al-Qaeda attack had the you know attack or conducted a September eleven attack and the Taliban created some harbor for the for the for the for the for the, for the Al-Qaeda. But after twenty years engagement it was very difficult for the united states established very sustainable government in afghanistan so the taliban returned to the powers it was same for the iraq uh, it was so difficult for the united states to create the you know the government or a new government in the iraq uh, after they had the military interventions uh, in the last 20 years there's a continuous civil war in the iraq and almost five hundred thousand people are dead uh, or killed by violence in Iraq and still the station is very you ne know, and the Iraqi government become very become very close to the Iranian regime because uh, they be- basically it become a Shia uh, the government so those less those cases like Iraq and Afghanistan give us quite clear indication that it's so difficult for the Russians to create pro russian government in Ukraine this is one of the very important lessons, I think, from, uh, from our study in the last 20 years. This is the first one. So it's very, it should be very difficult for the Russia to have a, you know, their own, like a puppet regime or, or even they include Ukraine into the Russian when Ukraine people are so united to fight against those kind of aggression by the Russian. So this is the first, you know, implication of my study. The second one is that Still, the President Putin might get some wrong lesson from Russian engagement in Syria. Uh, As I wrote in my book, uh, Syrian war started in 2011. And in 2015, Assad regime controlled only one-third of the territories. And another one-third of the territory was occupied by by oppositions. And another one-third was occupied by ISIS, you know. In Syria, so Russian decided to make a very huge military intervention to Syria uh, in September two thousand fifteen, and in just two years, uh, Assad regime restored almost seventy percent of the territories, and opposition was squeezed to the only four you know strong stronghold in the Syria, and they created some kind of a ceasefire agreement in Astana's, but. Uh, After they created humanitarian corridors, uh, Russian and Iranian and also Assad regime continued to make a military attack against those strongholds of the oppositions. And now we have only Idlib in the northern part of Syria, which opposition actually keep. And another stronghold of the are already occupied by the Assad regime. So, Assad regime actually restored most of the territory, I mean, 80 to 85% of the territory, I think, at, uh, until uh, at this moment. So, uh, President Putin might think that this could be the case, even for the issue of the Ukraine, that in the end of the day, he can rest, he can create or he can occupy most of the territory of Ukraine, and he might want to put Ukraine into the territory of the Russia. I don't know. They might want to create some puppet government. But there's a huge difference between the Syria and the Ukraine. In the Syria, no matter how brutal the, as a government was, at least he got about one third of the support by the population, especially by the Arabi people who are my, minority in the Syria, uh, who are very And the Arabic people are very afraid that they might get a lot of reprisal if the opposition actually won the war. But in the Ukraine, the people are very united, and they thought that it's a total aggression by the Russia. So I cannot see any possibility that Russia can create the puppet government or they can, you know, occupy the. Ukraine for many, for many years, or they can make the Ukraine as a kind of territory of the Russian. But, uh, I'm afraid that the experience of the Syria might give some wrong, uh, lesson to the President Putin. This is the second implication. The third implication is that when I study the South Sudan peace process, in the end of the day, it was, uh, Uganda, which supported present Kiers, and also, it, and the Sudan, which supported Vice President Mashar, which persuaded both conflict party to make a peace agreement in 2018. Because President of Uganda, Museveni, supported President Kia for many years. And President Bashir of Sudan supported Vice President Mashar for many years. So only when Sudan and Uganda become united, to persuade both President Kyi and you know Vice President Marshall, to make a peace agreement, it became possible. So it's so important that, or it's basically, it is a state official leverage who can persuade conflict party to make some kind of a concessions or a stop the war. So in this case, I think the country which might have biggest leverage against Russia might be China, because China might keep buying the gas and oil from Russia. So it's very important to have to motivate China to persuade the President Putin to withdraw the forces from Ukraine. I think this is the only way. It's very difficult for Ukraine to have some kind of political concession to the Russians, because Ukraine did nothing wrong against Russia. So uh, in order to Persuade the Russian government to pull or withdraw the forces. Uh, China might must might play the very important role, and another country which has a big leverage is the United States, because the United States can trigger what what trigger a lot of economic huge economic sanctions against the Russia. So I think in the end of the day, uh, it might be necessary for the for for the United States and the China to have some kind of a temporary alliance to push russia to stop this aggression because otherwise uh it might expand to the entire or all out uh, world war and and which is not good interest for 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 the international community including chinese people and the american people and also even, of course japanese people
0: as well no i mean clearly things are things seem to be heading in a rather uh, difficult direction. Um, and I mean, at some level, it, it seems that the difference between Syria and uh, Ukraine is simply that uh, Syria was an internal war with international, you know, involvement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an interstate war, yeah, in effect. And so, you've got you know, a party that's aggressing, a party that's been aggressed against. And, you know, they, they in some ways historically have gotten along just fine. But, uh, you know, right now they're, they're certainly, you know, not best friends. So, um, you know, it doesn't sound like you see a very promising, uh, you know, near-term future for this situation simply because of the obvious reason that these two parties are at odds with each other and there's (laughs) little obvious ground for uh, some sort of accommodation. Um, But I mean, what do you think the, um, insofar as there, you know, at all serious negotiations or discussions going on between the uh, Ukrainians and the Russians, I mean, what might they be talking about? I mean, I think at some level, these discussions from what I've seen are just not regarded as very serious by uh, outside observers, that the Russians really only regard the United States as a relevant, you know, negotiating partner. But I mean, could you say, you know, what you think about that situation? I mean, is there anything that the Russians and the uh, Ukrainians can you know, negotiate amongst themselves or does it really have to be between the Russians and the United States?
1: Yeah, in the end of the day, I think uh, we need to count on the state which have a very big leverage against Russia to stop these aggressions. I mean, and it virtually means that Russia to withdraw the Russian forces from, from the Ukraine. And the... Yeah, of course, United States has a huge leverage because the United States has a big power on making economic sanctions. And now financial sanctions can be very effective right at, at, now. So, But at the same time, if China keeps buying the oil and gas from Russia, the impact of the sanction might be quite reduced, right? So, So Russia might need to listen to what China actually said. I think it's a little bit harsh for us to request the Ukraine leadership or Ukraine people to make some concession because Ukraine did nothing wrong. And also Farid Zakaria mentioned in the CNN program that it's relatively easier for President Putin to withdraw the forces by saying that he finished or accomplish his military purpose. Because we are not quite sure what is the, his military purpose yet. It should be very difficult for democratic state to make this kind of interventions and to withdraw the forces without having any particular achievement. But for the Mr. Putin, it might be relatively easy according to the Farid Zakaria because he's very dictator in the Russian, in the Russian state. So if he calculate that it's very, he will get nothing from these aggressions and also he might be forced to, to to have a very difficult situation because even China might not be able to keep getting or buying the oil and gas from Russia, uh, he might make uh, some decisions. And this is something that we need to navigate, the cooperation of the international community to push the Russian to uh, that direction. Because so... Yeah, I might, I, I think it might be better not to frame this, uh, this war as a competition between the democratic state and the non-democratic state, because we have a many, many non-democratic states, uh, almost half of the nation are still non-democratic states, but they still do not have this kind of aggression or invasions to foreign country, because at least many member states respect basic rule, of respecting uh, sovereignties. So this is very important for for member states of the nation to respect this fundamental value of respecting the sovereignties. And the b- breaks that sovereignty right. So this is this is a, this is that's why it's so it has a, such a big stake. So I think it's very important for us to navigate this war as a, as a competition between the state which at least respect fundamental rule of the international system, including respecting a sovereignty, and the country which might not break out that kind of rule. And if we can succeed in making that kind of framing, yeah, many member states, even in the Middle East, Africa, which might not be democratic, might become the side of us that it's very dangerous to admit Russia to have that kind of aggressions or invasion to another country. So, and in this kind of framework, I think uh, we hope that we can push the China to make some kind of uh, political persuasions to to Russia to withdraw the forces from Ukraine because this is, uh, in the end of the day, this is a most important. I think condition to finish this war. Once the Russian withdraws all forces and the Ukraine restore full sovereignty, then we might be able. We might need to think about how to rebuild or how to rebuild the Ukraine, how to make sure the safety or security of the Ukraine as a state. Before withdrawal of the forces by the Russian in Ukraine. I think it's very difficult to make any kind of political concession or negotiation. So I think the international community as a whole need to create some kind of common strategy to make it happen and to persuade Putin to, to make that kind of withdrawal. Of course, some people might hope that this economic sanction can make the Putin regime collapsed. And of course, it might be good. If it happened it might be good, but it might not happen, right? And uh, we cannot allow entire world war to to start the war or to have a uh, military confrontations between the Russia and another uh, state or a Western state. So yeah, I think uh, we need to think about how to pressure or persuade uh, current uh, Russian regime to withdraw its forces from Ukraine. Uh, and and
0: right, the problem seems to be that. Um notwithstanding heroic resistance by the Ukrainian people and its president, you know, there's still lots of military hardware that the Russians can and presumably will bring to bear on their attempt to subdue Ukraine. And I guess the question is, you know, what will persuade Mr. Putin that, you know, this is a bad way to go? i mean in in this in these kinds of discussions i mean one of the things that one hears a lot is you know that putin is no longer as rational as he once Mm. was he's been isolated uh during covid the pandemic because he wants to stay safe um or he just you know has been isolated and therefore is out of touch with what's going on uh in the world um you know i sort of generally feel as though this notion of whether he's rational or not is not particularly useful. But (laughs) um, the question is, you know, it it does assist him in the sense that it makes him, you know, people think he's, if he's not rational, he's unpredictable and therefore dangerous. And that, you know, we don't know what he's going to do. And I guess, you know, I wonder from your, you know, extensive research in these kind of conflict Mm. uh, negotiations and mediations, I mean, is there a similar kind of experience that you could point to that where people, you know, play the crazy person who is going to be unpredictable and gets his or maybe her way, you know, in these, in these circumstances? I mean, does it, is it a useful thing to even you know wonder about whether he's rational or not? That's really a good question, but
1: of course, because South Sudan defeated their internal conflict. Many, many times. I mean, they started the civil war in the end of 2013. They had a peace agreement in 2015. But only one year later, they started the war again or civil war again in 2000, in July 2016. So, yeah, there are many people, especially from Western countries like Europe and the United States, that those president and the vice president are almost crazy. <laughs> they just keep fighting. But in the end of the day, African state, uh, convinced them to make some kind of Concessions and the, uh, and the cheese fire and um, and the uh, stop fighting and the uh, make a peace agreement. And at least in the last four years, uh, they maintain that kind of peace agreement, no matter how the implementation is very slow. So I agree with you that it's not so useful to think that those leaders are rational or irrational. It's more important to think how we can Persuade, or how can we actually pre? Sometimes pressure, sometimes persuade, sometimes coerce them to stop the fighting and that uh, to make some kind of peace deal. By, yeah, and the, we are not naive that we can always persuade those people or leaders f- to, to to stop fighting only by the logics, but. Uh, it's, it's a big, it's a big combination. In, in the case of South Sudan, they had some economic sanctions, which started triggering against the leadership of South Sudan, which had some impact, I think, on their calculations. But also, it was very critical that the country which supported those factions, like Uganda and the Sudan, become very united, because they really thought that it's very bad for them to keep having a refugee from South Sudan. So, and also for Sudan, it's very, it was very important for South Sudan to restore production of the oil because it, it was only way for Sudan to get some kind of a license of oil pipeline coming from South Sudan to, to, to the, to the Sudan and the, and the foreign country. So, so in case of the Russian, yes, I'm not expert about psychology of the Mr. Putin. So I don't know whether or not he's rational or not. But yeah, before he started invasion, he admitted to state right to uh, Donbas uh, to, to 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 occupy territory by Russian faction as a independent state and then he asked and he navigated those it's not independent state but uh, the state that that Mr Putin called as independent to request Russian to imbe- to to help or to assist or to make a military intervention to Ukraine so. He created some procedure or steps so if he's not ra- irrational he if he's not or he is if he's just irrational we are not not quite sure he can make that kind of a very detailed steps to make his intervention appear to be to follow some kind of a International procedure to to invite foreign country to to make some help or a military intervention. So, uh, because when he intervened in Syria in 2015, it was Assad regime which requested Russian to make a to make a military intervention. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you that it might be too early to predict that he's just lost lost uh, rationality, but. More important thing is that what is a logic or, or or method to, and also approach to, to persuade Mr. Putin or President of Russia to stop, to withdraw its forces as soon as possible from Ukraine, because it's only way to stop to save the many, many lives in Ukraine, but also to save many Russian forces who are, Russian soldiers who are forced to go to the Ukraine by this order. So, yeah, of, of course, I'm not so naive. I'm not so optimistic, but at least we should try. <laughs> we should do our best, to be honest, because uh, alternative is very catastrophic, especially if it starts having escalations. Yeah. Well,
0: unfortunately, of course, I agree with you that the situation is potentially catastrophic and we have to do everything we can to try to avoid that kind of outcome. So hopefully people will be able to use your research in thinking through some of these problems and uh, it's great to have had a chance to talk about it. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Daisaku Higashi for discussing his book, Inclusivity and Mediation and Peace Building. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo and Aguilar for his technical assistance as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.